Welcome to the Alaskan Journey Podcast. My name is Jamin Gerker. I'm a realtor in South Central Alaska, and my mission is to help people build an intentional and significant legacy for themselves and their families by coaching them in real estate. And the purpose of this podcast is to answer the questions that people have as they're thinking about moving up here to Alaska and also showcasing the unique lifestyles and the different um, authentic experiences that Alaskans have as they're living up here on the last frontier. Now, today we have a very special, um, very special uh, couple that we're going to be interviewing today. It's uh, actually Megan and Michael Blessing. They actually just recently relocated up here to Alaska from uh, Bozeman, Montana, and they have a very extensive background with uh, with art. Uh, Megan, you know, certainly has uh, quite a bit of experience with Montana and in Alaska. And her work has been shown in national exhibitions, including the Russell Exhibition and Sale uh, Museum, the Russell Art in Action, Great Falls, Montana, Mount Oyster Club Art Show and Sale, Tucson, Arizona, Our West Show and Sale, Great Falls, Montana, Cheyenne, <laughs> Frontiers Days Western Art Show, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and America's Horse in Art Exhibitions, AQHA Museum, Amarillo, Texas. And Michael and his work has been featured in various publications, including Western Art and Architecture, Big Sky Journal, Montana Quarterly, and Western Art Collector. And his paintings have won awards of excellence from both Western Art Collector and Southwest Art Magazines, the um, FASO uh, Bold Brush Award, and several international gallery awards, awards as well. So, guys, thanks. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having us. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm just going to start with this real quick. You both have very, very distinct and unique styles, and I, I really wish people could kind of see the the paintings behind you guys because they really do kind of symbolize, you know, kind of your both unique styles. So, I guess um, let's uh, let's go and start off. Just by talking about that, how did you guys de- develop such such unique styles? Uh, let's see. The neon striping that I use on my um, figures uh, today was started um, some years ago after painting a couple of neon signs for an art uh, show in Missoula, Montana. And uh, let's see. Um I just had a fascination with neon signs. I grew up with them, really enjoy them. They always represent kind of a feel-good nostalgia uh, for me. And I did these two, and a gallery in San Luis Obispo uh, owner purchased the pieces, called me up a week later and said, uh, I'll, I'd like to know if you have more of them. I said, these are the only two I've done. He said, well, I want 20 more because I want to represent you in my gallery in California. So I said, okay, great. So we struck a deal and I started painting these neon signs. And then I had one that was accepted to the CM Russell Museum as the first auction. I was invited to be in there. And that March in 2014, it set a record uh, at the auction and everybody was all excited. We were ecstatic. And then all of a sudden I got calls to be 
doing neon signs everywhere. And for almost three years, that's all I painted was neon signs, particularly the Western genre. And one day out in the back porch in Bozeman, we one summer afternoon, uh, I said, hey, Megan, I got this great idea. I'm Because I was a figure painter prior to that. And I said, I'm just itching to paint some people again. I'm going to put neon on people. She thought I was nuts. <laughs> and she said, I don't know. I'm not, a, I wouldn't advise doing that. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> what, what's, where's the market for that? Yeah, like my right. business mind is kicking in and I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Cause yeah, that's, that's the other yeah. part of it. I mean, you know, you're an artist, but then you also have to be a business person at the same time. So that's gotta be a, a hard yin and yang to balance. <laughs> Balance. It is a balance. <laughs> yes. So I said, no, I see it. It's going to be great. So I painted the first piece and it went to a gallery in Montana. And then they got me hooked up with uh, a publisher to print them because they were, they just thought it was great. So I, I launched this new neon West uh, series of paintings uh, with uh, old Western figures either from the movies or historic people. And I've been doing those since 2016 or so. And I have always thought sitting at the easel, what it would be like to actually put neon light on some of these paintings. Well, I finally just decided I'm going to do it. And two years ago, started working on my first piece. Uh, with neon, it was with actual neon, made them, took it to Great Falls that next year, and it was a huge hit. People just went crazy over it. So we thought, wow, we got something here. And since then, I've been doing some more of those. They're quite costly to make, so I don't make very many. They take a lot of time to make. So between time and expense, um, they're limited in in what I'm going to be making. But I have a solo show coming up in Montana in Bozeman at Montana Trails Gallery, and they will feature two neon pieces that I'll have there. And I use LED neon uh, lighting uh, now because I can assemble them myself and I don't have to have a glass bender uh, make the glass for me. Got so it. anyway, so anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's actually a good point there. So I guess what makes it that much more expensive because i mean i mean talk to me like i'm five here so okay. i mean what's uh what makes the um the neon you know more expensive and makes it more time consuming well the process itself is i come up with a design that um i want to paint and then once the painting is put together i there's a need for an eps vector file that needs to outline the tubes where they need to go and the size they are. So that is plotted out. Then a, a, a company in North Carolina called Incision makes the um, actual pieces in the color that I colors that I want and uh, manufactures these pieces. They're made out of acrylic, very tough and durable uh, with LED uh, lighting inside. And I chose this company after doing a bunch of research um, because the neon, actual neon glass um, lighting was um, challenging in terms of shipping because it's fragile, it's glass and, and other issues there. Uh, 
it looks great, but um, that's, I was looking for another alternative. Well, this company made one that was to duplicate the look of neon itself. And what it is, is uh, I get 360 degrees of light radius all the way around the tube. And I should have brought some of those out. I could plug some in for you. Anyway, I have these little samples of colors that I use while I'm painting. Uh, anyway, um, so this stuff is manufactured. It takes about six to eight weeks once a design is sent to them before I get it back. And I paint on a different substrate than I ever have painted on before. And it's an aluminum substrate. Uh, which is rigid where I can attach the lighting effects to it, to the painting itself, and they remain in place. Um, so that is a, quite a bit more time consuming in preparing, preparing the uh, substrate to accept paint, oil paint. And then a special frame is made in order to attach the substrate to, and then the assembly part, once I get all the pieces together after the painting is finalized. And so there's assembly uh, there as well. So the, the uh, expense of having the neon manufactured varies on how much neon light I have put in, uh, will be putting on the piece itself. So that can vary, but it is, um, it's more expensive to manufacture and then actually having neon glass bent and to the shapes that I would want. So anyway, uh, that's an added, yeah, added expense. So probably don't expect a neon mural anytime soon then. <laughs> uh, not anytime soon, but I would love <laughs> to uh, some, uh, be, up, be open for public work, um, doing some public work. I've thought about how to construct the uh, pieces that I envision that could be public pieces. Um, so that's something I've thought about. And they could be any size, really. The neon, this this company invented it, and they actually invented it for outdoor use for neon signs. So that because it lasts, it tends to last longer than the glass, you know, it, if somebody it's just more durable. You know, people will throw rocks or something will hit the glass and then the glass has to be replaced. So it's actually great, a great application for outdoor use. And one of the things that we noticed when we came up here is all the amazing, beautiful, lighted public works pieces yeah. that, that Anchorage has. And so um, that just got us really excited because yeah. Michael is, he he's always full of ideas. Like he's just the idea guy. And he has already come up with some really cool ideas for um, just different applications. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, Megan, let's, uh, let's go and talk about your style a little bit. How did, you know, tell me how that evolved. <laughs> um, my style, I started painting, well, animals. I love to paint animals. That's my thing. I'm Michael does the people. I do the animals and I painted horses for quite a while. That was my specialty. Um, because I grew up with horses, trained them, rode them, love them, know the anatomy really well. But the horse, again, when we talk about businesses, the horses are a little bit of a limited market. And so I got into doing some wildlife. And as I have continued to paint, my style 
is getting more abstracted. So I like to do a very realistic, believable animal. And then I like to abstract the background. So there's a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of mystery in my paintings, but they, they so they have a modern application, but they fit really well in a traditional style, you know, a traditional home or whatever. So I enjoy doing them. I like painting large. I prefer to paint large if I can. I like to paint the larger animals and they just have a lot of presence. And I, I usually will focus on portraits. I like, I like faces. I like eyes. And so um, those are the features, the facial features of the animal that I bring out so that there's a connection when the viewer sees it. Outstanding. So, yeah. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a step back here real quick then. So you both were you know, obviously very, very well established in, you know, in your area, Montana. I mean, I can see it even just looking at the paintings and kind of just being familiar with having lived in Montana and kind of appreciating them, you know, even some of the, some of the icons there. Cause I mean, you go to Montana and you can't help but feel like inspired for, you know, the old West. That's, that's kind of just how it feels. <laughs> And certainly the animals there too. So you guys are very established there. You can certainly see it's impacted the, or influenced your art. So what is it that made you guys decide to decide to um, pack everything up in a, in a Bigfoot trailer and uh, move over to Alaska <laughs> in the middle over. of a pandemic? <laughs> it's, up, it's up and over. <laughs> <laughs> so big question, big question. <laughs> Take that step by step. <laughs> Go ahead, Megan. Um, we have always had a pull to Alaska. Um, it's one of those things. I'll let Michael tell his story. But when I was in high school, right before my, well, yeah, right before my senior year of high school, my parents got this crazy idea that they wanted to move to Fairbanks. And my dad got a job at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And right before my senior year, <laughs> took the family and went, okay, we're moving to Alaska. And so um, I, I graduated from West Valley in Fairbanks years and years and years and years ago, and um, and then actually ended up going to college in Montana. So that's how the Montana connection got started. So and never came back. Um, never never came back up. I came to visit my parents once. They stayed for a while and then actually moved to Bozeman. But I never forgot that. It was just, I loved it. I loved the North. I loved, I, the dark did not bother me. Um, I, I love snow. I love cold. I'm not, I'm not a warm weather person, really. Um, I do not tan. I burn. So I would prefer <laughs> not to be in the sun <laughs> too much. And so I always wanted to come up here. And we have been, well, let me, and then Michael has been up here a couple of times. You can mm -hmm. tell how your Alaska yeah. parts okay, right. <laughs> when you were up here. <laughs> yeah, right. The stories. In, two, in 1982, I hitchhiked up here from Bozeman. I had started going to the Montana State University in 78 and was still in Bozeman finishing up and decided, hey, I just want to go to Alaska. So a friend of mine and I, we hitchhiked and came up. It took a month for this whole trip and it was fantastic. Just absolutely amazing. The whole trip was, uh, but Alaska was the, was the goal. And so we came and experienced that as two hitchhikers and made it back. And then I had a family reunion. Uh, my sister, sister's husband, my brother-in-law uh, was in the air force, um, lived in Palmer 
at the time. That was in 2004 and came up here for a couple of weeks in the summer and just was blown away uh, by the places that um, my sister and brother-in-law took us to Whittier Bay and uh, Seward and down down along um, the Kenai and all that. And so, and then being in Palmer was just like, oh my gosh, it's such a beautiful place. So anyway, it's been on our hearts to um, come here and visit. That's kind of what we were thinking. And then we got this idea. (laughs) Yeah, we got, well, we kind of got a divine (laughs) download. Our kids are grown. And we had talked about coming up here. We actually, I actually worked in Palmer for two different summers um, at a camp outside of Palmer with horses. That's, that was, so I had a little bit of a pause. So we kind of were drawn to Palmer. Um, But um, yeah, we just got this last year, this divine download. Like if you, you're not getting any younger, if you want to do something, why don't you just sell everything you own and go to Alaska? Like, why not? Why not? You know, and so we we thought about it. We were like, well, it seems kind of crazy. I mean, it's 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 actually quite difficult to pick up your life. We had a business. We had, you know, still family in Montana and all of that. But uh, we decided to kind of test the waters, like just, you know, throw a couple things out there. And so we did that. And what we found is that um the ball just started rolling. And once mm-hmm. it started rolling, it was more and more confirmation that, yeah, this is a great idea. Why not? Let's go do that. So it was really kind of fun because we were listing everything we owned on Craigslist. And every time um, something would sell, somebody would show up and they they had an Alaska hat on. They had an Alaska t-shirt <laughs> on. They work in Alaska for the summer, but they couldn't go last year because, you know, last year was kind of lockdown. And then they, you know, all of a sudden it was constant all summer long. And so, yeah. As it, as it continued on, we were just like, man, we just, this is just, this is the right thing to do. Like we just knew this was the right thing to do. So we came up here, we downsized our business into the back of our truck. We have a full-sized truck with a cover on it. And we downsized our home into a 25 foot Bigfoot trailer. And we came up here with everything we owned. So. Yeah. And that, uh, that's a lot of commitment to the vision at that point too, because I've, I've kind of done that process myself. And, uh, that's something I think a lot of people have to consider if they're thinking about coming up here is, um, either you're going to spend a lot of money or you're going to downsize, get up here that way. <laughs> yeah. But that certainly does take a lot of commitment though. So tell me what was y'all's experience like getting up here then? Cause I mean, you were coming up here, you know, what was it about four or five months ago? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. November. So, yeah. November. Right around the November timeframe. Yeah. You know, what was your experience driving up here then? I mean, luckily you're in Montana already. So, I mean, for most people, half the trip's already done. <laughs> right. Well, we were used to driving on snowy roads, um, having grown up in those climbs, you know, and in Montana and all that. And so that was, that was no problem. Um, we did do some research in terms of the, the trailer that we wanted to, to pull in order to make it through a winter here. And, uh, we did our research and the, the Bigfoot was the one that, uh, just seemed to make the most sense. 
and boy has it performed oh my gosh uh for all all the the snow and temperatures or whatever that we've incurred since november yeah, it's just just went it just went through its paces and did it very well it pulls well too and it pulls it's, well too it's yeah. a little wider than a regular trailer and it yeah. just yeah you didn't ever feel like no. you were pulling anything we you know? we were on snowy roads from Oh, where's the Alaska sign at? Where is that? Dawson City. Dawson City, all the way to here. We're on snow the whole time. And it never slipped, slid, or whatever. We had really good tires on the truck, but boy, that, that trailer just pulled really, really well. So the border crossing was good. We we showed up there in just above uh, Great Falls. And... Um, uh, they said, okay, you're checked off. And we went through and said I had five days. So we drove, you know, pretty much four and a half days. Yeah, we had a time limit and we were quarantining in the trailer as yeah. well. So um, what we did as far as the driving up is we, we had to fill the trailer with water because we were quarantining. <clears throat> ah, so got it. Okay. Going, <laughs> <laughs> so it's November and it's freezing. And so we were looking for a weather bubble as to when to leave. And so we found one that looked pretty good. Like we were like, okay, this is what, cause it actually had had a cold, a cold snap right before. And we were looking at these negative 20 plus temperatures and we thought, Oh, uh, this isn't going to work. So we caught it on the warm and um, warm, relatively speaking, warm. <laughs> And we did not put any water in the hot water heater on the trailer because as you're driving, that hits the air and it will freeze unless you stop and, and warm it up every six hours or so. So we didn't do that, but we did put water in the trailer. So there was always this nagging, like, oh, are we going to freeze up? You know, every time we stop, <laughs> we're checking it. And we did get to a point um, in Watson Lake, I think it was, it got really cold and uh, the Bigfoot is rated down to negative four before it freezes. And sure enough, when it hit negative four, that pump slushed. It wasn't frozen solid, but it slushed. And we were like, oh no. So we, we said, okay, we're going to, I have done a lot of home. We both have done a lot of sort of homesteady stuff. So we're pretty good at mitigating things. And the Bigfoot is, um, ducted so that the heat ducts are run along the water lines it's one of the differences of that trailer versus a different kind of trailer so i said okay we're gonna um open up everything so that the pump is open to the inside of the trailer and then michael turned on the heater and we're like we're just gonna have to run it we're gonna have to run the furnace while we drive that's the only way we're not gonna freeze and so we did that and we thought, we'll just ch check it. And it did not blow out. It did it. I don't know if that's recommended, but that was our only option at that point. And it did work. It did get us through. We hit negative 13 in Glen Allen. And so we kept driving until we found, I think, one degrees to pull off the road that mm -hmm. night because it wouldn't have done in negative 13. We did spend a night in negative eight. And when we opened up everything and ran the furnace solid, we didn't freeze. Man, that uh, that gets intense out there. <laughs> like, yeah. Trying to explain to people, I mean, the Alcan, it's beautiful and all that, but it's a big, long road, and there's not a whole lot going on along that entire stretch. 
Especially not in November of 2020. <laughs> no, not at all. Like famously so. There's not nothing going on out there. <laughs> no. Oh, that's awesome. Did you guys have any issue, I guess, with trans? Did you uh, transport like your studio, the the paintings and everything with you also? Or, you know, did you just mail that stuff up there? How did that work? Well, we had it all with us. We put, we did um, put everything that we had, you know, that was ready to go to market. Of course, we put it, we put it in the galleries before we left. So, but we did have a few things. And then of course, everything that the studio requires our easels, all that kind of stuff. We had it all packed in the back of the truck. That truck was loaded to the gills. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was so it, loaded. Oh yeah. It was, <laughs> I don't know what else we could have got in there. I don't know. So brand. I mean, you're looking at <laughs> our, we're actually in a rented studio space here because, you know, we still, we can't paint in the trailer. It's just not enough space. So we do rent a studio space here mm-hmm. to do our work in and you can't see it, but everything from the, it's like the truck unfolded and everything just went and it's, it's all in here. So, <laughs> yeah. So we did that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So you guys have lived up here in Alaska in the trailer for, you know, about four, four or five months at this point. Um, I guess what's, you guys are not really you know, new hands necessarily. I mean, Megan, I guess for you, you're, this is kind of a coming home story for you, but <laughs> what's, what's been y'all's impression so far of, I guess, of, um, of being here in Alaska and actually, actually living up here now. The beauty is every day. I, I mean, Montana is gorgeous as well. Yeah. It's just different. And to have, the magnitude of everything from these mountains all around us and they're loaded with snow they're the mountains are right in your face it's like being in a ski town 24 7 and this is just the way it is here in the winter so that was that for me that's the that's the biggest impression and then um it's just been terrific. The people we've met here have just been absolutely incredible. Everybody's so friendly. So friendly. Um, yeah. We love it here. Yeah. <laughs> we really, we really love it here. We, um, I, it does feel like coming home, although I, I really had only spent one year here, but I, I love it. Every day yeah. we go outside, we're just like, we, we love it here. So we're super happy. Um, I would say for anyone wanting to live in a trailer <laughs> in the winter, one thing that was surprising to me was the how damp it is. It's damp. It's much more damp here than it is in Montana, where we're from. And people, it's really? funny. Like I, I always thought of Alaska as being a really, really dry, kind of a cold. But you see that uh, compared to Montana, it's, it's still pretty, um, still pretty damp. Yeah, it is. Being, being right on the ocean here, the, the, I don't know how it all works, but just having this massive body of water here, regardless if it's winter or summer, it's going to pull the humidity um, around. And in Montana, it's, we just don't, you don't have that. It's uh, the the clouds have dispersed most of their their uh, um, 
water on the mountain ranges from the coast. And certainly you get snow in Montana too, but not, you know, not like here. Um, so I think it's, it's just an atmosphere thing. I mean, it's not grossly humid, like being in a rainforest. I, I assume the Southern Panhandle would be quite different um, of Alaska or BC or, you know, places along Washington and Oregon. Those are very humid places, um, jungle areas around the world. It's not like that here for sure, but it's definitely more than, than what we're used to in Montana. So the condensation, when it gets cold, um, there would be a few times where we'd have ice on the, on the walls of our trailer. So you just had to be very cognizant of that issue um, when it got really cold. We do have a dehumidifier inside the trailer, which captures a lot of humidity. The propane heat gives off um, water vapor as it heats too. So that's kind of a That's added, a wet heat. Yeah, added yeah. thing. Anywhere that there is an airspace, I will just tell you, if you're wanting to live in a trailer up here and you, I think if you are completely off grid, the only way that I can really think of to mitigate that would be to put a wood stove in your trailer. I cannot think of any other way to, to keep it from really condensing. And you have to watch because under the cushions, under the bed, you have to lift that stuff up after a cold spell or sometimes during a cold spell to get it dried out, or you will have mold problems. Like there's no way you got to watch it. And the other thing that I learned is you cannot pack every single nook and cranny of that trailer to the, the walls. It's just like a tent. You can't touch the walls of a tent or the, or it will condense and the water comes in. So it's the same thing with the trailer, even, even this fiberglass trailer, which is, you know, much thicker walls than a, a regular stick built trailer, but I had to go through. And so anytime it got really cold, we opened all of the um, cupboards and cabinets, made sure that there was nothing touching the exterior walls, check daily for dampness. When it starts to warm up and that ice starts to melt, you better dry it off right away and get it, you know, pull all your shades and get, so there's just kind of some mitigation things like that. Um, we did, we do have, um, uh, propane and we have uh, the dehumidifier running 24 seven in there. And that has been a lifesaver because the other thing is that if it's damp, your temperature is going to feel a lot colder than it actually is. So mm -hmm. it, you're just, you just can't get warm if, it, if it's too damp, it's really difficult. Right. Right. I mean, I, that's, that's actually a really good point. So keep it as, as dry as possible. Um, Make sure that things aren't touching the the walls, and kind of open things up even when it is getting cold out. Um, for people looking to to maybe do some RVing, you know, in the the colder climates, do you guys have any other, you know, I guess uh, pro tips at this point? <laughs> have a really really good heated sewer hose. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. yes. I feel like, yeah. yeah, I can't, can't state that enough. <laughs> he got, Michael found him. Michael yeah. researches these things and he's the one that found the amazing <laughs> tires for the truck and they're not studded. They didn't, you know, so he said, get ice tires, no studs. So that's what we did. And he found this, the sewer and water hoses. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's no freeze water hose. No freeze water hoses. And they're made in, I think Ohio, if I am not mistaken. 
uh, yeah, they're made in Ohio and they tested them on the North slope, uh, for people that are living up there and they're rated at 40 below and they're built like a tank. And I mean, you go to your RV store and they'll have heated hoses but they're not like this. Um, this is a whole different thing. And man, has it, it really has uh, been the thing to do. So if you're going to live uh, in these climates in a trailer. And um, you have access to electricity. You have access, yeah, you have to have you access have to, to, to being able to be plugged in. Um, it worked really great. So that was a real, real plus. They're great. Yeah. Do you happen to, uh, do you happen to, I guess, remember the, uh, the brand or, or no water. freeze water hose, Say again? Pretty, no freeze water hose. Got it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 They make sewer hoses and the water hose Yeah. for intake and, you know, outflow. And they'll make them to your specifications. Like how long, cause it's not just the, the water hose. It's also the spigot right? And the intake. So they make pigtails on them and you can decide how long you want them. And so then your pigtail wraps around the connection point, because if your sewer hose or your water hose is fine, but the connection point is frozen, it isn't going to do you any good. So they, anyway, phenomenal company, very, very well worth it. Let me tell you. Get the, <laughs> get the full, uh, full endorsement then. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Outstanding. Oh, good deal. Good deal. That's what it is. No freeze water hose. No yep. freeze water hose. Yes, that's what you want. Yep. And it they just are great. They're they're pricey, but wow. It's worth it's it. worth it. They're guaranteed for up to 10 years, too. I mean, I mean for a trailer, that's that's pretty much for like eternity. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the other question. Like, I'm really like I know my uh, my parents did the RVing thing for a couple of years and Know, their trailer seems to be, you know, staying together just fine. But I guess how long do most trailers last if you're getting a moderate amount of use out of them every year? I don't know. I don't have, I personally don't have a whole lot of experience with other types of trailers. This one, um, we had one other one prior and it was a stick built one, your average trailer. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, rated for winter time, but after doing the research, um, yeah, to do the winter kind of thing, this was the, the yeah. choice that we made. It is hard on, I, I think regardless of any kind of trailer that you're using, it's hard on trailers to it be is. in the cold and be used. It's just, so you really, and every trailer is different. We, we did have a stick belt one before, those seams can expand and contract with the freezing. And, and so that can be an issue driving this one up here. We were really careful, but there's, I mean, you know, if you've driven the Alcan, you got what 300 miles of frost heaves <laughs> to go through. And so we were going slow anyway, cause it's winter and there's animals and all of that. But even so, when we got here, I was, um, just kind of cleaning up and I, I looked on the floor and I saw a, a, a head from a screw and then I saw another one and I'm like, what? So I look and of all of our windows, three screw heads sheared off just from the shimmying. So we'll need to, we'll need to drill those out. Um, we had Replace some hinges it. pop loose. 
And we were probably doing maybe 30, 35 miles an hour over those frost heaves, but fully loaded. I mean, we had a fully loaded trailer. We had a fully loaded truck and it was probably too fast for that. So there's some little repairs and things that we need to do. And then just living in the cold like that um, is difficult on it. The Bigfoots are built like a house. So you have cabinetry like a house. It's not staples and glue. It's actually joined wood and really solid stuff. And that has been wonderful because when you're opening and closing kitchen drawers all the time and opening and closing everything, you know, the bathroom door has a piano hinge on it. It doesn't have regular hinges. So they're just, they're built a lot better. So I would expect this trailer honestly to last for a lifetime. There will yeah. be some repairs that we would need to do, you know, just like anything. But if we had our older trailer, <laughs> I don't, first of all, it would be very difficult. And secondly, I, I think it would probably be Mike's laughing. Oh Lucky <laughs> if we'd showed up with a door and a window <laughs> over that road. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, but no. it wouldn't have lasted through this winter. It would have, it would have been pretty trashed by the end of this year, I think. Yeah. So you, you might get three to five years out of them, depending on how hard it yeah. is, if you're moving a lot, but that's just a yeah. guess. Yeah. I don't know. I know that there are people that do it. And in all honesty, if you want to do something, just do it. Like yeah. that's part of the the wonderful thing about Alaska is that people come up here and they have they just have this grit, you know? It's like I'm going to figure out a way to do this and Yeah, can do. Yeah, and we're we firmly believe in that. We believe in possibilities. We believe in the human spirit. And we love that. I love to see how different people are living their dream the way that they want to, you know, with just this, hey, we're going to run into problems. That's the way life is. We'll figure it out. That's part of the creativity of being an adventurous soul, right? Yeah. I mean, that really is the spirit of the frontier up here. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And that honestly does not surprise me at all that you guys came from, you know, Montana, where you kind of especially see it in you know, are kind of the glorification of the, of the frontier in the wild west that you guys would end up here on the last frontier. That really doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so have you guys <clears throat> had the chance to, to connect with, um, I guess the, the artistic community up here yet, or, I mean, I know you're still kind of just getting your feet under you and <clears throat> trying to get established, but have you um, <clears throat> had a chance to start reaching out to people yet? We have some a little bit. Um, quite honestly, um, we've been painting. We've been working pretty hard since about January till now, and we will be till we leave um, to go back to Montana in mid-May. We're going to take two months and do business down there and then come back uh, late July, August. But we've just been pretty, pretty uh, busy doing our work here, so we haven't had a whole lot of chance to reach out. Because our business is already established and we have our network and uh, people that we know already, we're, we're still just doing that mode. So we haven't really had a need yet to reach out to, to uh, the arts community, although we have um, looked at things and we intend to do that at some point, probably when we come back. Yeah. And we've been um, talking to people here and they're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? Do you know so-and-so? And we're like, 
No, it's really interesting how regional art is. You know, people in Montana, well, and we worked with the Montana Arts Council for several years. Um, we've been part of some pilot programs for rural economic development in Montana, and we're hoping to be able to offer that um, in Alaska here. We're looking at doing that for artists who want to start their business because that program actually is what launched it, it, it launched gave us the yeah. tools so that when when it when our work started to take off with that auction and and some other things that we were doing we had all the tools in place to actually present professionally and you know have galleries take us seriously and all of that kind of thing so we love to do that we taught that program for 5 years in Montana and worked with the arts council there and so we are trying to just come here and honor the culture that's here in Alaska because it's different. It's not the same as Montana. This is a different place and the, the art is different and the people are different. And so, you know, we don't want to come up here and be like, you know, Oh, here we are. This is what we do. <laughs> We're going to fix this place right up. Right. I know. It's like that. we didn't come up here to, to do that. We came up here to assimilate with what is here because that's why we, we wanted to be here. You know, if we wanted to stay where we were, we would just stay. So we are looking forward to, to doing that. And we've been able to, like I said, drive around a little bit and see some of the public art installations. Um, there's been some cool stuff that we've seen at various uh, places in Anchorage. So we would like to be more involved with the artist community here, and we are looking forward to doing that in the future. Oh, outstanding. So what you were saying before about, you know, trying to try and prepare those, you know, up and coming artists, um, how, how do you go about, you know, what are the main things you're teaching them nowadays? Has it changed, you know, any in the past 20, 30 years or, you know, what's the... You know, yes. How do you go about training someone these days? <laughs> yes, it has yes. changed. Um, and I think the internet has been a key factor in certainly where we began doing full-time work as artists and then where it is now and the whole demographics shift, the paradigm shifts in um, art in general um, is going through a, it's going through a paradigm shift for sure. So there's those two key elements. Um, what's the, uh, what's the paradigm shift? Well, let's say in our, in our genre, and I know it's happening in other genres as well, but ours is, uh, Western art, let's say, um, for lack of a better word to describe that is our, our, um, our market and where traditional artists had been painting, you know, cowboys and horses and scenes like Charlie Russell and Frederick Remington did, I mean, in their own way, but it was pretty renditional um, style painting. A lot of those people um, are aging to the point where they're the, not they're the, not buying any more the art. Collectors the collectors that, aren't mm -hmm. buying art and they're also passing on and they're handing their collections, which some of them are very quite valuable now. They're handing them off to their their kids and their their kids don't 
it's like we don't like this stuff <laughs> you know we're, we're, we appreciate it probably on some level yeah. and some people some of the younger crowd does but they're they're plugged in to you know our our world um our fast-paced world so and their phones and whatever so contemporary western art which is where we fall in um it's a it's a kind of it has been an offshoot for 20 30 years is now being brought into the forefront of of what western art um is today and the renditional stuff will always be there it is it is um it's continuing there are people that are doing it still but it is shifting so the styles and when you open this contemporary um aspect to western art i mean we're seeing all kinds of stuff so and people are liking it they're the younger demographics anywhere from people that are 25 to 55 even they're really really mm-hmm. liking the new stuff so there's a shift mm-hmm. that way and i think it's really um it's it's a good thing in that it opens a lot of doors. So what I'm seeing, and even like both Michael's art and my art are they're they're fusion arts. Like yeah. so, I I paint renditional animals with very realistic <laughs> eyes and faces, but then I have this abstracted modern background. And Michael paints, you know, his figures. They're very they're renditional. You can you know it's not abstract, but yet he's got these bright colors and neon tubes, and it's really interesting. Almost. What he's doing now, I love. I love his work now because the faces almost look like um, um, mosaic. Yeah, it's like mosaics, mosaic. or almost like there's a comic book kind of the way he does the brush strokes yeah, and stuff. It's just really cool. So, as in a way, it allows for people to bring more creativity because the rules, the bumpers have widened. Like you don't have to fit within this little thing in order to be accepted. You yeah. can you can mix and match. You can let your creativity flow and have your expression of what you're trying to say. People will look at it and they'll see it and they'll go, oh, this is really different. I've never seen this before. And right now, people love different. So for a creative person, that's actually, I mean, we can raise a hallelujah for that. <laughs> we don't have to conform. We can be different, <laughs> you know? I'm sure that's, that's pretty relieving. Um, how is the, I guess the, business side of it shifted in previous years? I mean, we kind of mentioned the the internet being a big player. Um, I'm assuming stuff like Instagram, I'm sure is, is certainly helped, but you know, what have you guys seen from, from your experience? Um, I have seen that. Yeah. The way that business is done is very different than even when we just started teaching. So we were kind of on the tail end of people were still had paper, like, you know, you had a paper portfolio that you would take to a gallery and, you know, make an appointment if they will see you and here's my portfolio and you kind of flip through it and, you know, all that kind of thing. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, Even things like business cards, are becoming less and less a thing. People don't want stuff like they used to want stuff. And so having business cards to hand out, it's Mm -hmm. actually easier to have like a digital card or just shoot them to your Instagram, shoot them to your website, Um, how to drive traffic. We try to 
um, emphasize to people because a lot of artists that when we when we started teaching them, they're completely they have no tech savvy at all. They make what they make, and they're waiting to be discovered. And in this day and age, the likelihood of that happening is very very low. But the good news is is that there's no gatekeepers to tell you you can't be discovered. You can get on social media, you can put a website up, and you can learn how to drive traffic to that website. And FASO, which is Fine Art Studios Online, which is the websites that we use and um, are fantastic. If you are a 2D artist, you have to be a 2D artist. They they don't have 3D, um, but they are wonderful. And they do a lot of the web SEO for you. So they take a lot of the marketing out. The prices are very reasonable. They have different kinds of plans. So we kind of, we help artists to do that. How do you get yourself out in front of the public? How do you market yourself? How do you be seen? So everything from social media hashtags to, um, you know, even building funnels and teaching courses and that kind of thing. Those are all things to consider depending on what it is that you want to do as an artist and how your business is structured. So if you are an artist and you also teach, that's going to be different than an artist who, like a jewelry artist who sells lots of little things. Like that would be maybe a different type of website. So anyway, we go into all of that and every everybody is different. And, and also personalities are different because if you hate running your business, you're not going to do a good job at it. So we talk about how do you build a team and, you know, what do you, at what point do you outsource certain things? You know, those kinds of things. How do you invest in yourself? How do you scale that stuff? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that that to me is huge because, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not uh, not a real um, art history buff, but it seems I've known of a couple artists where they really just loved the craft and they hated the business. So being able to <laughs> kind of kind of be able to navigate that in a fairly straightforward way, I, I think is probably enormously helpful if you're looking at jumping into it. Yeah. And you're right. Artists are artists because they love creating and business tends to bend their head, but it doesn't have to. So the way that we teach it, and it's a, it's a, it's a special course that was written by a brilliant, brilliant friend of ours. Um, and the way that we teach it is instead of approaching it from business, like business will say, okay, here's how to run a business. Now come up with an idea. Artists already have the product. Like they already have the idea. How do you build a business around a really great idea in a way that doesn't like make you want to shoot yourself to run it? Right. <laughs> so that's, that's that's kind of what we we try to teach. Yeah. Right. Outstanding. So you guys are founding the the Rising Lights Creative. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your vision there and? Where you guys plan on taking that? Yeah. So that um, business is an offshoot of what we do. And it is taking the idea of everyone is creative in some way. Um, We all have creativity woven into our DNA because creativity is constructive in nature. So I don't care if you're building bridges or if you're building sculptures or if you're making paintings, or if you love to dance, it you are creative. And we have been at art shows, I can't tell you how many times, and people come up and they're like, oh, I just love your work. And oh, I wish I was creative like you, but I'm just not. 
And I just, I think, so not true. So not so, true. True story. Yeah. I started painting on a dare 18 years ago, 19 years ago now. <laughs> I started painting on a dare. I was the person that said I can never draw a stick figure. I, I don't do that. I don't do that. And I started painting on a dare. And Michael's story is equally interesting. You want to give the <laughs> different, quick but, different. Uh, we actually started painting the same year. I, um, I was owning and operating a recording studio um, had for 13 years and I'd been a professional uh, record producer, music um, engineer, musician primarily um, that started all that for about 25, 30 years. And I had a cancellation uh, from an artist who decided to work with a producer in Nashville. So I had a two month block of time in 2002 to just do whatever I wanted, I guess, clean <laughs> up the studio or fix things. Uh, but I also started drawing and one thing led to another. And within six months I had sold the studio. It got a hold of me so hard. Uh, just like by the lapels and said, you got to do this. So I said, okay, we're going to do this. And I sold the studio, started painting and drawing like as much as I possibly could. And then one thing led to another. And I started showing in 2004 in galleries. And uh, by 20, 2006, I was doing commissioned work for portraits and and whatever else. And so when it just kind of, you know, snowballed after that. And so the point being with Rising Lights Creative, back to your question, we wanted to give you yeah. the backstory, yeah. is that everyone <laughs> is creative. Yeah. And what we want to do with that is to give people the tools because um, what you bring matters. We have seen artists, we've, I don't know how many artists have come through our cohorts now. It's got to be 50 or 50 maybe or even, 60. actually, no, it's more than that because we did two cohorts, but yeah, 50, yeah, 50, 60 something yeah. people. And each of them are different. And each of them have something really, um, you affect the world around you by what you do and also by what you do not do. And so, if you are not operating in the, the gifts that you are given, first of all, it, it's easy to be frustrated to think, oh man, I wish my, I like my life, something's missing or I'm bored or something, you know, but once we find that passion, like, you know, you're, you're training for, for a run, you're, you're doing running and it's, I'm assuming you love to be outdoors. And I'm assuming that, you know, Alaska people love to be outdoors. And so there's something in that that feeds your soul. And that is true for everybody. Everybody has that thing that feeds their soul. And Rising Lights Creative is about showing people, helping them discover, first of all, believe that they have that thing. Secondly, how do you activate that thing? What does it look like in your life? It doesn't have to look like, you know, quitting your job and only doing that thing. But it, it does mean that there's a, there is more joy to be found in your life if you are operating in your intended purpose and destiny. And where does creativity fit into that? And how does it affect the world around you? That's kind of the premise of what this business is. Mm, man, that's, that's fascinating. So is it, I guess, teaching artistic techniques? Is it about kind of the 
coaching and guiding people along and kind of finding those, um, those inner, you know, creative drives that they have, and then just teaching them where to channel that? Yeah, I, it is in process. It's new. So this business is being developed and probably been around for about a year as we continue to develop it. And so there will be some courses that will be coming online that people can take just depending on what stage they feel like they're in that. And then the vision for rising lights is honestly to help people rise. So um, we're hoping to bring in other creatives, other um, people who have been successful in their field, business people, um, gallery owners, um, even, you know, performing artists, because we, like Michael said, you know, he was a musician. I actually went to school for music as well. So <laughs> we met through music and then we, we made an art business. So uh, <laughs> of course, performing, yeah, of course, but performing arts, culinary artists, we have friends that are luthiers and make beautiful instruments. Um, so that's kind of, we want to be able to pull pull a lot of different people in and basically kind of make it a hub for people to get inspired and to find purpose in it and go, oh, wait, here's a piece that will work for me. And as we um, we're hoping to launch the um, entrepreneurship program for Alaska this coming fall. And that will be also another a piece of rising lights for any artists or artists in any different disciplines that are wanting to actually do this as a business as a full time. Then that's how that would be run. Outstanding. Well, sounds like you guys uh, you never go halfway. <laughs> yeah, you don't know the heck. <laughs> We're cliff jumpers. That's yeah. what we are. <laughs> Not afraid to just go for it. I love it. I love it. So, where can people go if they want to you know, check out the the rising lights, or they you know want to get in contact with you guys? Where's the the best place for them to go? You can follow Rising Lights Creative on Facebook, Instagram. We do have a YouTube as well that we are working on getting some more videos up. But if you want to see what it was like to come to Alaska, um, kind of, you know, condensed version of a lot of road, you're welcome to go there and watch those. Um, uh, there is also a private Facebook group for those who are interested in getting involved with Rising Lights Creative or just kind of seeing what it's like. Um, you can go to the page and then the group is on the page. You can um, ask to join that. If you are interested in seeing Michael or Michael's art or my art, then our websites are michaelblessingart.com and meganabrablessing.com. And that's M-E-A-G-A-N. A-B-R-A. It's a little awkward, but that's my name. So that's what it is. And you can follow us as artists also on um, Facebook, Instagram, under Blessing Fine Art or our separate names as well. We're kind of everywhere. <laughs> you, Good deal. You know? we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll make sure that we do get as many links as we can into the, the show notes here. So we'll, we'll give people some good jumping off points. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, you know, Mika and Mike, I really do. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I really do appreciate y'all's uh, y'all's time. Then, is there, I guess, anything else you'd you'd like to say, or any other topic you'd like to explore? Uh, 
I would love to paint the landscapes here. And I just may do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, plenty of opportunities. I mean, I was about to say, I'm really curious to see how the, how the surroundings here starts impacting and starts influencing y'all's y'all's art. Is that something you're starting to see already? Or are you still, you know, kind of have your, your set style and kind of staying with that for a little bit? My plate's pretty full at the moment, so I'll meet my obligations. But whenever I can get a chance to uh, peel that door open, um, I would I would welcome that. I'm just taken by what I see here, and uh, I, yeah, I'd like to do that. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, every every place that you go is different. Every market is different. Every um, just the style is different. And so, yeah, I don't, there's no way that we can as artists come up here and not change. Oh yeah. There's just no way because your landscape and it informs what you, what you create. So I, yeah, I would absolutely expect that over time there will be a shift in our work Mm -hmm. because that's just, that's just how it works. (laughs) You know, and we're excited about it. Like, yeah. I, you know, I kind of want to paint a polar bear. I think I might do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, go find a polar bear or get one that's willing to, to sit in studio. Right. For a bit. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has a pet polar bear, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, it was a pleasure, pleasure talking guys. And um, like I said, we'll make sure we get the the links down in the, the show notes and um, for those of you who are still listening, thank you. And, you know, we'll look forward to look forward to um, talking in a future episode. Um, if you are looking at moving up here to Alaska, certainly do check out my YouTube channel at Alaska Realtor. And I do answer the questions a lot of folks have about moving up here. So make sure you check that out. And other than that, thank you for, for listening and see you next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.